You're listening to Enduring Essentials, Self-Awareness. How does self-awareness impact your ability to deal with or address racism? This is episode nine of the Educators for Impact podcast. This episode was recorded on July 19th, 2020. This podcast aims to shine a light on educators as people. Through exploring, examining, and uplifting the experiences of educators, we hope to leave a lasting impact on the students, families, and communities we are called to collaborate with. During this episode, we will discuss what self-awareness is and how teachers can become more self-aware, not only as people, but as educators. Hello, hello, and hello. Once again, my name is Michelle, and I'm one of your hosts. I'm a middle school teacher in the Bronx, New York. And since collaboration is the name of the game, I'm here again with my awesome co-host, Kalinda Jones. And I'm here from Sacramento, California. I'm a community college professor here. And Michelle has the unusual privilege of being one of my former high school students way back in the day, 19 years ago. Time flies. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Literally. And Kalinda, just tell us a little bit about your teaching responsibilities. So part of, as it relates to this episode around self-awareness related to the racial reckoning in the United States, I think I have throughout my career taught in middle schools, high schools, in some graduate schools, some graduate schools not, but some of the graduate programs I've taught in and currently in the community college system, I've taught a racially diverse group of students and I teach in a maximum security prison that is disproportionately African-American, Latinx men, as is true with the criminal justice system throughout the United States. So we see the reflection of the racial disparity. We see that in our classes there. Thank you for sharing. I'm going to go ahead and jump into the quote of the day. This is from Bettina Love, and we actually love Bettina Love. We talk about her a lot, her writing, her commitment to anti-racism, and just the way in which she presents solutions. She's very solution-driven, and so that's why I'm I'm a fan. So shout out to Bettina Love. This quote is from you. Anti-racist teaching is not just acknowledging that racism exists, but about consciously committing to the struggle for racial justice, Bettina Love. And because we love Bettina Love that much, we have another quote from her, double dose. But at the end of the day, white teachers need to want to address how they contribute to structural racism. They need to join the fight for education justice, racial justice, housing justice, immigration justice, food justice, queer and trans justice, labor justice, and above all, the fight for humanity. And what she's asking us to do in both of these quotes is just turn towards the suffering that you see and commit to the struggle to change it. It is not up to one person, one group, one country. It's up to us. This is self-work that she's asking us to do, and she's asking us to commit consciously to making the necessary changes in ourselves so that we can help fight for humanity. So thank you, Bettina Love, for that. I'm going to ask Kalinda a question just regarding race. You know, we did an episode about the racial reckoning in America and just like in general, like, you know, how we were feeling about that and our experiences with racism in America as educators. So for this episode, we're just going to focus on like, how does one respond to race and racism like right now. So what was your response when everything started popping off a few months ago? What was your initial response to that? 
I think unfortunately my initial response to the killing of George Floyd was like it was grief and it was sadness and there was doubt that we were gonna not have to keep doing this again and again and again and again right so I think that I've become a little hardened I remember when Obama was in office and something happened. I'm not even sure it was a police killing. It might have been a school shooting. And he said something like, basically like, and I'm here again, <laughs> right? And I, I think I was feeling that. That was my initial response. And then typically in the past, I have uh, protested and marched, and that's been part of the kinds of things that I've done. And this time I wasn't really feeling like the urge to do that. I wasn't resistant to it, but I wasn't feeling the urge. And so I started doing a lot of self-awareness about like, what, what was I feeling? What did I believe my response could or should be at this time? So I've been spending a lot of time in self-awareness trying to pay attention to kind of my inner sense of what motivates me, of what I feel compelled or called to do. And I've also reached out a lot to friends to hear kind of what they are thinking um, might be part of my role right now. So yeah, that's kind of where I've been. With your initial, yeah, I mean, I would say I definitely, initially I saw, first I saw the picture of the police officer with his knee on his neck. And I think I was with my sister. I said, that, this is not real, right? This, this can't be real. This is not happening. She's like, sis, that's happened. I said, no, 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 no. Because it, it didn't look real to me. Mm-hmm. It did not look like someone would actually do that. Like, I know that there's police brutality, but I never thought that so many people would be standing around and just allowing the way in which he was being pressed to the ground to take place. So my first reaction was like disbelief. And then it was like, okay. And then when I watched the video, I was like, well, okay, this is just, I, I can't. I felt like a lot of grief, like you said, just for his family. Um, whenever someone is is murdered, like the family, I mean, you can't imagine what the family goes through, particularly like black mothers in general. I always feel for them because it's like, it's just this ongoing narrative in America that black moms have to mourn their children. Mm-hmm. So that, that for me, that was like, the grief was real. And similar to your reaction, like I didn't feel the urge to get out and protest. I remember taking like my mentee when Trayvon was killed to a protest and like showing him like, you know, like you have a voice and you can take action. But I'll be completely honest with COVID like it is. I was like, nah, I was, you know, I ain't gonna, you know, I was like, I don't, I don't, you know, I am a a child of of a chemist. So, you know, he's always like, you know, my dad is just really, really smart. So he's always like, you know, if you're going to take a risk, take the risk. But like, Michelle, you got to know what you're you're risking. And so I made that choice to not protest. However, um, when we talk about being called to respond to something, you know, the, the racial reckoning in America was like an alarm going off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. An alarm that people of color have been sounding for generations. And we've been writing about it and talking about it and movies about it. And all like this is, we've been speaking out about racism in America through our music. I mean, I have an entire playlist of like songs where artists have talked, spoke up about racism. And we've been, we've been saying this. And so this time around, when the call came to my ears, I said, I'm going to answer this call with some healing. Mm. So instead of being really angry about what happened, 
I decided to say, well, where did all of this start for me? And because what happens is, and I think other people can agree with me, when something like this happens, this pure racist actions, like that was, that was racist what happened, we can reflect on times when we've experienced racism. First, we think about times when we've been pulled over by the police and our cars searched and we're sitting on curbs and like just being just like totally treated unfairly. And then we go, you know, we can go a little deeper and think about when educators have treated us unfairly. And then we go a little deeper and think about when people in stores have treated us unfairly by following us or labeling us. And then we go deeper and think about peers in school who have treated us unfairly. And so it just, it just like, it can be this real spiral of reflecting on harmful experiences with racism that usually get buried in our anger. Therefore, we don't take the time to heal. And so this time around, I decided to not participate. When invited to talk about race, when invited to chime in and have these conversations about like, you know, racism, I decided to say no. Because with self-awareness means that you are able to look at yourself in the present moment. Yes. Make a choice. And I'm like, Michelle, in this present moment, you are going through that spiral and you're not going to just continue to go through the spiral and then by the way, let me just talk all about the racism in our organization or the racism I'm experiencing right now. You're going to step back. You're going to examine the ways in which you've been treated unfairly through race. You're going to rip apart any pieces of the ways in which you've been treated that you've taken with you and you've made a part of who you are, right? And so like a lot of times I feel like I, well, having experienced racism in school will say, well, i took on this label that I wasn't as smart as other kids and I wasn't intellectually able to retain information, right? Through the ways in which the teacher was giving it to me. And because I'm black, right? There's something wrong with the way in which I'm using the information. And so I carried that label with me, right? And when the racist reckoning started happening in America, that spiral started to just start taking off in my mind. And I'm like, damn, Michelle, like, you really need to think about this, how you've been affected by it, and pause. Mm. And so it was a choice. And because of that choice, like, I was really able to just start really having conversations with my therapist about it and moving forward with the healing process when it comes to um, just the nastiness of racism that I've experienced and a lot of Black Americans have experienced. And we really for me, particularly, I've never taken the time to actually seek help and healing from the harm that race causes. And so, yeah, I made that choice to answer the call by, by healing self first. I'm okay with that choice. So, yeah. Look, you're looking like, can I comment? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I didn't know if you were about to go deeper, like, or more, right? I'm more interested in what you, like, do you want? A thought or a response or yeah I don't really have one I mean I can come up with one if you want no no I don't because I think for this particular conversation it's more so about like how we personally answer the call it's more so like you know what I did and then what you did but if there was one I would I would welcome it but I think it's okay to be left as it is you know I see you I hear you thank you so how am I responding to the kind of call for a racial reckoning right now? Yeah. 
as a white educator who's taught middle school through graduate school, and now I'm teaching undergraduate classes in community college. I've taught a lot of cross-cultural psychology and cross-cultural counseling courses as well. And so when I think about where I am right now, is I, I really am spending a lot of time trying to figure out where I'm, I guess, maybe s supposed to be, called to be. I don't really know the words, right, to, to say. What I do know is that, like right now, in this immediate moment, I feel very deeply that if people think that racism is not a problem in the United States, they're really missing the real truth that structural racism in many areas, as Bettina Love's quote puts here, right, in housing and immigration and food, right, etc., that people are missing that racism stops opportunity. And I think that most of us, I believe that most of, most of us as, as educators want to see people reach, you know, more of their potential. And racism is one of the many isms and injustices in our country that stops that. And so I believe that, I've seen it, I've witnessed it, and I believe strongly that I need to change the norm. And I've been doing this for a minute, this is not new but I need to change the norm around how I, how white folks talk about race in, especially in educational settings. And so for me, the question that I'm trying to answer is what does anti-racism look like for me when I have had a lot of experiences and a long-term commitment what does it look like for me right now? And I do want to say that that sounds very much like it's about me. And that's not, I don't really mean that. I mean, like, what is my role in this larger thing that's going on? So I don't want to center it back, like, on me. What am I feeling and thinking? Like, not that, but I really do think it's a war. I know that not everybody likes that illustration, but I don't really have another one. And I know which army I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to know what to do as my role in that, that army. And so those are the things that I'm thinking about right now. And part of that role is what we're doing in this podcast. We are hoping to at least begin to, to welcome people to new levels of self-awareness as it relates to knowledge. What do you know about racism? What do you not know? How do you understand what goes on in the classroom? How do you not understand it? To emotion. I really, as it relates to my white peers, I really encourage you to get self-aware about how you're feeling and then feel it and then move past it. Digest that feeling, digest the shock, digest the denial, and then excrete it. Let it go so that you can come to the table right? What are your strengths in relation to racism and in, in anti-racist practice as an educator? What are your areas for growth? How do you understand your cultural identity and the way that broadly intersects with race? And not that you're leaving race behind, but there's a difference between the way race, class, and gender intersect in the classroom for one person than another. So some a white female who comes from an upper-class neighborhood who goes to teach in the Bronx is bringing a different racial experience and cultural experience than a white female who comes from maybe a lower-class background in that space. And so what I want to do in my work right now, what, I, what I'm believing that part of my role is, is to speak to other 
of my white peers and say, look at denial has to be gone. This is, we cannot do that. We cannot pretend that racism is not real. You can't pretend that racism isn't going on and you cannot pretend that it doesn't occur within our system and within your classroom. And so once we come out of denial, then what I really believe I want to do is hold space for white people that are feeling whatever they're feeling so that they can move beyond the feeling to action. And so for me, that's my action right now is to be beside or with white folks who are trying to figure it out. I know we don't usually do this, but I definitely want to circle back. I not really circle back to mine, but like I want to name something that African-American or, or Latinx educators or educators of color experience racism in the workplace frequently. And we have to heal from the racism we experience as students in mm-hmm. the education system. And a lot of us have to heal from the racism we've experienced as educators because it's real, right? And so when you're talking about like just, I need our, our white listeners to understand that racist acts towards colleagues are not okay. And then when racism happens in the workplace, Black people aren't just making it up. And I feel like a lot of times in the workplace, it's confined to these little uh, pockets of conversation about race when we have a race training. There's a reason behind having the, uh, what do they call it? The anti-bias training Mm -hmm. and all those, those, those conversations that take place once or twice a school year, maybe. There's a reason why those trainings happen. It's because those people are trying to dismantle those systems in which people of color are being treated unfairly in the workplace. And so as a Black educator, we have to kind of heal from those experiences too, so that we can continue to do the work that we do. But we want to be able to do the work without race being a factor. You know, we could be 10 times the educators if we didn't have to constantly worry about stripping ourselves at the door to come into the school to do our jobs. So I didn't touch on that piece and I just wanted to circle back to that. Like it's important to know that this, this isn't just about you and your kids, me and the, and the kids in which I teach. It's about the relations with the colleagues as well and how race intersects in those relationships too. I can hear if someone's continued to listen through this and is kind of like, I'm not sure if I'm vibing with these people. I can kind of hear someone thinking like, not me, I didn't never do it. I really don't, I really wish that we could just stop with a denial and just say like, have I? Did I cause harm to a colleague? Was I careless? Was my intent good and my impact because of my ignorance or my lack of like focus on the other person? Was my impact harmful to that other person? I would love people to just entertain the question and sit with the discomfort and lean into it. Lean in. If you're not willing to at least entertain the question, if my white peers, myself included, are not willing to entertain the question, things are not going to change. Because it's not like, it's when our colleagues of color say to us, I've experienced racism and here are the things that I've experienced subtle and blatant in the workforce. When that is being said, it's not like there's one person doing it. (laughs) Like it's not one person. It's not like, right, it is a culture of a way that we can deficit, disrespect, disregard the experience of our colleagues. And I've, I was thinking about this earlier. Michelle, did you have something before I went with No, that? I just, I agree that it is not just an isolated experience. It's not just, oh, this one time. It's, 
I haven't run into a, a situation where it was like, oh yeah, this one time this happened to me, racism happened to me. It just doesn't, that's just not how it works. So continue though. So I was thinking as we were talking about preparing for this conversation, I would, a kind of picture came in my mind that as I've been watching what's happened in the United States, I've really been really puzzled about the lack of empathy that I'm seeing, especially probably because I teach. We actually teach empathy. I tell students like, I can't teach you to want to understand someone else's perspective, but I can teach you a set of communication skills that will allow you to really figure out whether you're understanding that other person's perspective and communicate back to them or validate to them you hear their experience, you feel their experience, right? Not that you're experiencing it, that's not what I'm trying to say, but that you can hear their perspective of the world and hear it deeply. So I've been thinking a lot about this lack of empathy and this idea that like as a white person, when I walk out my door in the morning, I have the option to see the world through what Bettina loved. Like she talked about like a, a set of race glasses that you put on. So I really, the way this white this white supremacy system is set up, it allows me to walk out of the house and not even think about the fact that race is a factor. Because for the most part, it does not intersect with anything I do in my day. So when someone else comes to the, the story or comes to the table or whatever, has a story that they've experienced the world as if race is real for them, it's like someone's like, well, I don't understand. That's not my experience. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's still someone's experience. And it's like we're on two different islands. And what I'm, a, what I'm concerned that's happening is that white folks are now like walking across the bridge that will allow them to look at what they've refused to, what some of us have refused to look at as it relates to the intensity of racism and police brutality in our country. So now some people are on the bridge, they start to get on the bridge, they're like, oh my gosh, that looks really scary and terrible, and I can't believe that's happening, and I can't sit with all of that, like, suffering, and so I'm about to go back over to the other bridge and talk all about how I, or all over to the other island, go back across the bridge to my island, and I'm going to talk about how I feel, so sad, so upset, so guilty, I'm like, it, that's not really the point of this. The point of this is for you to look at what is going on on the other island and in ways that you have set on your island and shot arrows to people on the other island. Mm. Or watch somebody shoot the arrows and didn't say anything. Yep. And That's therefore true. you got the not me complex. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that this would be a great time to just talk about our takeaways. And I'll start. Self-awareness when it comes to race means that you're in tune with your racial identity and you're able to see yourself, see the ways in which race has impacted your life or not impacted your life. Yeah. And then make a choice to join the struggle to change it. And that change, it's okay if that change starts within you, right? And for me, I was feeling like kind of guilty about not protesting and not picking up a sign. And then I said, it's okay to start with self sometimes. And I think with, for me, as a woman of color, I usually never start with self. I'm always trying to help someone else and let me help the situation, let me help that situation. It's very rarely that I reach within myself to help me. You know, when dealing with race, it's like, yeah, Michelle, like, it's okay. It's okay to reach within and help yourself. So that's my takeaway is like this, this conversation helped affirm that belief that it's okay. And so I guess my wondering would be, when it comes to, to race, when it comes to 
having difficult conversations with colleagues, especially about race? You know, how do we approach them with this urgency, yet fragileness, I guess you could say, like that you need to have in these conversations because they're so raw? They will feel raw for people. Like I said, like when you said the shakiness on the bridge, I'm like, I'm seeing waves and all type of stuff like crashing against the bridge. I'm like, okay, that could be really scary, but you still want people to get to the other side. So although it's urgent to cross, it's still important that you don't accidentally push people to go the other way because we're not making sure that um, we're giving people the tools that they need to really have these, these conversations. So although I have taken the time to heal now, it doesn't mean that I will not be a participant in these conversations in the future. Yeah, I want to make sure that I have the tools, the necessary tools to, to help people across that bridge when I have the emotional capacity to do so. So that's where I'm at. Thanks. You're welcome. I appreciate you sharing. I want to share a little bit on like my experience in this moment right now. So I want to actually model some self-awareness and engage in self-awareness. I spend a lot of time talking about race and racism, both in my interpersonal relationships and professionally in the classroom where I have power to give people grades <laughs> to decide what the assignment is. But I don't really just like talk on a podcast about <laughs> this. And I'm feeling like a little bit of fear and uncertainty about whether I expressed myself clearly and I'm actually feeling like a fear of judgment, which is really interesting. This is not a typical experience that I have, but I wanna say that right now because I feel like that that exactly what I'm experiencing, I can step back from it a minute and go, this is how white supremacy, white silence, white immunity, white denial occurs, is because it's fear of often irrational judgment or resistance from the system, like a resistance to change. and. What I'm wondering is how rational that fear is, because a lot of times I think it's very irrational. So like what I'm feeling, I'm just wondering how rational it is. And I'm wondering what I need to be doing in these next steps to grow with more confidence in being able to speak in a more public setting where I'm not just the teacher or a tenured faculty member. So I'm wondering what I need and how I need to grow to be able to move to that kind of place. This was a deep episode, sis. <laughs> it was. Yo, so I mean, I hear you. I think that these conversations are necessary and they're going to, if you've really opened yourself up and been vulnerable to actually having one of these conversations, then you know that you leave the conversation with the, hmm, Mm -hmm. with the wondering like it's a, almost like a little weight that comes with you and that means that you were actually engaged and you were you were propelled to like actually take something from it so i welcome you if you feel that weight then just feel it and it's okay so as always thank you so much for listening to our podcast today please feel free to leave a comment or a suggestion about topics you would like to discuss in the future uh, during our next episode we will continue our self-awareness series by talking about how self awareness intersects with our call 